0: Hey everybody. This pandemic has been a strange time when it comes to the arts. I think that some mediums like live theater have really been suffering, whilst others like TV and music are having a bit of a moment. The arts are a thing that honestly escaped me. I don't know what it is, but my logical brain really struggles when it comes to the creative endeavors. I took this idea and I posed it, as well as others, to my guest this week, Lucas Cantor. Lucas, as you might have guessed from the title, composes music for a living, but he also utilized a strange and very logical computational method to achieve some of his coolest works. Hey Lucas, thanks so much for joining me today. Whereabouts are you dialing in from?
1: It's my pleasure, and I'm joining you from Los Angeles, California. More specifically, Chatsworth, which is the northwestern part of Los Angeles.
0: Oh, nice. Uh, What is it that you do out in Chatsworth?
1: I'm a composer, and I'm in Chatsworth because I'm a father of two, because this is kind of the suburbs, but I'm in L.A. because I'm a composer.
0: Got it, got it. Yes, that makes sense. Um, And so I will just say, if we hear any kids screaming in the background, that's probably one of the two uh, during the conversation. Uh, What kind of music do you compose out there?
1: I write music uh, for film and television, and I also write music for concert stages, or at least I used to back when there were concerts before coronavirus.
0: Uh, anything that you've done that I might have heard?
1: There's sort of two answers to that question. Um, I've definitely written music that you've heard that has been on TV that you have not noticed because it was not the the featured part of the broadcast. Uh, I've done a lot of music for sports, and I've done a lot of music for TV movies and other f- films and stuff. I think probably the most uh, the, the most notable project I've done recently was a concert work and it was, uh, I finished Schubert's unfinished symphony with the help of artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah. Uh, hold on. Hang on. Uh, you merged two things really quickly there, which is music <laughs> and artificial intelligence. I did not expect that to come. What What does that mean? What How do you finish Schubert's symphony with art, artificial intelligence? I, I can imagine the answer, but I, I want to hear it from you to make sure that I'm not totally off.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it was a, uh, sort of a complicated project that um, Huawei, the cell phone manufacturer, contacted my manager and basically asked if we would be able to do this. I knew someone who was working on the tech team for Huawei who was trying to figure this project out. And what they wanted to do was use AI running on their phone, which at that time was the Mate 20 Pro and programming it um, with a machine learning model to listen to all of Schubert and generate a possible, you know, finishing to the, to the unfinished symphony. And it didn't super work the way that they had intended. Their intention was, we'll just have the phone finish the symphony, and then we'll have the orchestra play the symphony that the phone finished, and that will be that. And they very quickly realized that they needed a human to intercede and you know make a bunch of decisions that the phone was not able to make. So what we ended up doing was having the phone generate monophonic melodies rather than try to orchestrate which it was not really able to do but it was able to generate melodies that were based on schubert's melodies that for whatever reason it thought would be the you know melodies that would be in the final two movements of schubert's unfinished symphony and then i took those connected them to each other put them in an order that i thought made some sense and uh added some other things and orchestrated them and had my team of you know music prep and orchestrator people work on it and make it really nice and then we performed it in london at cadogan hall
0: Look forward to hearing it when you said it was released. Um, I I have to ask because for me, working in tech, I always sort of think of computers as a, a ones and a zeros type thing. I mean, in the end, there's a lot of logic that goes into coding. Let's make this decision, make that decision. And music, maybe incorrectly on my end, or maybe correctly, is always very like subjective, very artistic. It's almost like a feel. I, I don't know that I'd be able to to attribute a one or a zero. So in that really rudimentary explanation, how, do you, how did you find combining the two things and going from something very technical like a phone spitting out monotones to a performance at Cadogan Hall?
1: Yeah, well, music is, uh, is also very technical. And adding a phone to the um, repertoire of technology I already used to create music was not a big leap because I'm, I'm sitting here in a room right now. I'm in a, my home Recording studio, and I'm surrounded by computers. You know, I have four monitors on my, you know, right in front of me. Uh, two of them are for my composing machine, which has uh is actually two computers that I sort of VM into, and then one of them is just for video. Or two of them are just for video, and there's a lot of technology that I use that you know was revolutionary. Some of it two years ago, some of it ten years ago, some of it twenty years ago, and now it's just sort of part of the the tools that I use every day. So adding. Artificial intelligence running on a phone to that repertoire didn't seem like that big of a leap to me. The emotion in music is largely generated by the the listener. I mean, the emotion comes from you. If you think about the the song Hallelujah, I, I talk about this sometimes. If you think about Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah, that is a you know worldwide popular song. Uh, it was made popular by the movie Shrek, where it sort of. Premiered to the world, but by the time it had gotten into the movie Shrek, it had already been—it was already 18 years old. And the album that it was originally on was pitched to CBS, and the president of CBS Records, when he heard the album, said, "Lenny, this is a disaster. We're not going to release this record." He, he hated it, and for good reason. It's a weird album, but it was uh, "Hallelujah" was picked up by different uh, indie artists over the years because it is an interesting song and it's a beautiful song. And it was made famous, I think, probably by Jeff Buckley. And then John Kate picked it up, and it became a folk standard after that. The album that it was originally on was called Various Positions, and Hallelujah really is a song about sex. Um, so that's the uh, artist's intention, right? That was the composer's intention for that song. But it ended up becoming somewhat of a like love song slash pop standard slash song that goes in kids' movies. So when you listen to Hallelujah, you're going to have a different association with it than I'm going to have when I listen to it. And neither of those associations were anything that Leonard Cohen thought about or knew about. All of that to say that the emotion in music comes from the listener and not from the composer, even though we might be feeling something as we're writing.
0: Very well put. And I had no idea Hallelujah was tied to sex. That's um, <laughs> when, uh, when
1: Jeff Buckley performed it in New York City, he used to call it a Hallelujah, a salute to the orgasm. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a good trivia note for everybody who's <laughs> listening. I think that's... I actually find that really, really helpful as now, as I'm playing the song in my head again, Um, I want to, I want to pause quickly because as you've just explained that to me, I could kind of get a sense in your voice of, you know, deep learning within music and it's obviously your your profession. You've most likely spent uh, a lot of time honing your craft and all. Can I just ask why music, what, what stage of your life did you decide that music was going to be your profession and how did you come into this to, end up finishing Schubert's 8th and and other things I'm sure we'll talk about as well.
1: I went to music school. So I decided, I guess when I was, uh, after one semester of college where I was majoring in, uh I mean, nothing really, because I was a freshman. So, but I was thinking about probably majoring in English or something like that. After one semester of that, I realized that I was spending all my time playing in a band and that going to school for music was the thing I could do. I could just play in a band all the time and not be bothered by political science courses and so on. And so I switched uh, and that was when I was about 19. So at that point, I, I guess I decided at that point that I wanted to make music my profession. And the reason that I did that at the time, this doesn't make any sense anymore, but at the time I felt like, I guess I wasn't challenged enough in high school maybe. And I felt like things were easy and that music was something I wasn't very good at, but I really enjoyed. And so I thought this would be a good challenge for a lifetime to do something that i don't feel like i'm naturally very good at but like if i work really hard i can get really good at it it has lived up to that it has been extremely challenging and it is something that i love and now something that i think i'm pretty good at uh musicians have called me maestro so you know i've passed whatever milestone that might be you know i I don't know if music is the hardest thing i could have done but that that was what i was thinking at the time i don't think i've ever really said that publicly but now it's on your podcast (laughs) okay well (laughs) you've heard it here first uh
0: I, I'm going to admit to you that I did do a bit of Googling, mm-hmm. just kind of curious as to going in this. And I encourage anybody listening to similarly do a, a bit of a Google, because I was curious about the, the Eighth Symphony and the AI bit, but I just wanted to see a bit. Um, two things popped out that I really want to talk about. The first is, have you won Emmys being a composer?
1: Uh, well. So I have won two Emmys. I won them actually as a, an associate producer for the Olympics. So I was working in the music department of the Olympic Games, which does music services and at that time uh, music supervision and so on. And so I won two Emmys as the as the associate producer for music on the 2008 Games with NBC and the 2012 Games.
0: That's that's a very like large, very very impressive task. I, I don't know any other Emmy winners, and I'm sure most people don't. Um, How did that feel? Like, I mean, what what goes through your head when first you get a nomination, then you actually end up winning that? Like, what do you? Does that is that? Oh my god, I've hit the summit! Or now you're like, I have to work even harder because people expect me to be this two time Emmy award winning composer now.
1: Huh i I actually so the first time I was nominated was in 2006, and I was 26. And um, on the night that the Emmys were, uh, I because because this was an Emmy for a live event for a big team event, I wasn't going to be the one to accept it. So. Uh, so, I threw a party at a at a bar where we were just going to sort of watch it, and I invited all my friends and I was feeling like a pretty hot sh- twenty six year old and we didn 't win, um, which was probably like for my ultimate ego and life, probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I think I would have been an insufferable prick if I had won an Emmy when I was twenty six We were nominated two years later and I went to that to that ceremony that time. A friend of mine was actually working at Jazz at Lincoln Center where the sports Emmys are pre- are presented, and she hooked me up with like a you know, a cheap seat. And uh, And yeah, we won. It was pretty amazing. And it is a fantastic feeling to win an award and to be recognized. I was part of a huge team, so you know one of the things I like to say is, I think my job was important, but if I had not been there, the Olympics still probably you know would have been fine, and they still probably would have won an Emmy without me. But I did my part, you know, and uh, I, I mean an, an, an award like that, a friend of mine just won a Grammy, and one of the things that he said was, and he, he's a bit older, and he said, the thing that's amazing is that you know all these accomplishments that we have, like you play on a record, you do something, you do this session that's really impressive or really fun that's cool for a couple of weeks, but an award is forever. Mm. And that is uh, that's that is something that's kind of amazing about it. I don't know. I I don't feel like it follows me into rooms. I mean, maybe it's gotten me a meeting or something. Especially in Los Angeles, um, people are are generally unimpressed by things like that. They want to know what you can do for them.
0: <laughs> oh dear! Oh, L.A. Come on, guys! If you're sitting in London and you come over to a bar and you say I want an Emmy, might just buy you a pint as a result of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can. I'll, I'll take it. If, 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 I don't know if it's got me any any free beers but I definitely had a like a weird roommate one time that used to go to bars and tell girls that his roommate had an Emmy and um that he would let he would show it to them if they came back to the house. So I've never in my
0: mind thought of an Emmy winner going home to like a shared flat and like popping the Emmy into like their bookshelf <laughs> or something and then their roommate being like, "Yo, can I hold your Emmy?" Yeah. because that's obviously what happens, but it's just <laughs>
1: It was when I first moved to LA, and I, I only lived in this place for a couple of weeks. But that was uh that was the situation.
0: All uh, right. Next question from the Googling. That I'm. I, I mean, no offense. The Emmys are incredible, but I'm way we more excited to ask this question. Can you tell me about the Wu Tang Clan?
1: <laughs> um, I can't tell you that much about the Wu Tang Clan. Uh, I was. <laughs> so, what you're referring to is I was the composer of a short film slash commercial. I don't even really know what to call it because it definitely wasn't a commercial, but it also it kind of was a short film. But it definitely was sponsored by White Castle and Impossible Sliders. And it was called Wu-Tang in Space. And the idea of it was that it was basically a call-in show with, uh, I think it was RZA, Jizza, and Ghostface Killa. But Jizza was a computer and they were in a spaceship, which is of course called the Wu-Fo, flying – Throughout space and answering people's questions as they called in and uh, wanted to know things, and it was a weird show. It was a great show. It's one of my favorite projects I've ever done, honestly. And I got to do it with um a director friend of mine named Sam I, who is a a director and also a, an amazing musician. And we know each other through music. We've known each other since middle school. And uh, this was one of the first projects, like you know, major projects that he directed. And so we got to work on the score together, which was really cool. It's one of the one of my favorite things about working with him as a director is that he's also a musician, and so we can get really detailed about the music that we do together. But uh, yeah, that was a really fun project. We did music in every conceivable style, and it's on like YouTube. So if you if you look up Wu Tang in space, you can see it. I highly recommend it. It's like it's just it's just a lot of fun, and you know if you like Wu Tang, you you will definitely dig it. Um, Sam, the director, has been a Wu Tang fan. For his whole life, for you know, as long as I've known him, and which is almost his whole life, and probably before that, and he has a cat named Wu Tang, so he's a true believer.
0: <laughs> true believer. Okay, I will. I will link Wu Tang in space for anybody listening. Okay. Um, I I took a peek at it, and it it looks like a Wu Tang Clan production. You know, really fascinating and, and very fun. Um, I, I realize that we've kind of gone away from the original <laughs> basis of the conversation yeah, that I normally would have asked <laughs> Yeah, but this is probably what would happen in a bar if I had met you. I might have Googled your name quickly just to see something and be like, tell me about this, tell me about that. But
1: Hold on, let me me stop you for a second. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like surreptitiously Googled someone that you just met in a bar?
0: If I had met somebody who had some sort of accolade that they had discussed with me, like if we were talking and you're like, oh, yeah, I've done some stuff that you might have heard. I might just be like, oh, like, can I just look it up? And I'm curious. I wouldn't necessarily do it. (laughs) in like, stop talking, I'm going to Google you real quick, I would have done it in such a way to be like, Oh, this is fascinating to see as, as if the person sitting in front of me has all this stuff going on in their history that I didn't know about.
1: That's funny. So I I would never, I would never do that if I was in a bar. Like, I I think (laughs) that's, I mean, part of uh, maybe it's like cultural, like maybe it's like Los Angeles culture, but like, I I would, I, the idea of like mentioning to someone casually that like, Hey, I've won some awards and I've done some stuff you might've heard of. (laughs) I, I can't even like imagine how I would bring that up. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I mean, look, I, w- I won't do it very often, but in my life in London, a couple of times I've met people who just have either told really cool stories or I've mentioned something that they published and having a Google is always kind of an interesting uh, push to the conversation because it brings up things that sometimes they they either forgot about or just wouldn't want to have talked about at that moment. And I genuinely feel like the exposure of a uh, random person like me wanting to learn more is somewhat galvanizing for people because they, they think, oh, great, like, there's almost a bit of um, interest on stuff that I didn't even know there was interest on.
1: Oh, yeah, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. That's a, that's a good point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, back to our kind of original music-oriented conversation. I've always been curious because I started the show mostly because of these conversations that I've just mentioned to you a moment ago, but also the fact that I had not created very much in the world. Like, I'm much more of a consumer. Um, you know, I work a nine-to-five, and my creations were few and far between and and also kind of silly, but this was my first endeavor to put something more formal together to publish it out and create. And what drove me to do that was, you know, in previous podcast episodes, I've discussed it a bit, but what about you? What drives you to create from nothing?
1: Well, there's two answers to that question. Would you like the uh, serious heady one first or the pithy one first? Go
0: pithy and then heady, I think.
1: Okay. So when people ask me this question, I will always quote Cole Porter, who was asked the same question. Some reporter said, What inspires you to write a song? And he says, usually a phone call from my agent. So um, <laughs> so that's the pithy answer is um, I, I you know I get paid to do this. And so inspiration or not, if someone asks me to write music, I figure out a way to write or, you know, I try to write really great music that will fit their project and that they will like and that we'll all be happy with. So that's that's one answer. The other answer is that yeah, I do Get inspired and sometimes write music uh, that is just something I wanted to write. I hesitate. Some people say that you know I write music for me, but I, I've never written a piece of music for me. I always write a piece of music for an audience. I want people to listen to it. I I personally don't think it's art until it's published. I think you know it becomes art when other humans are able to listen to it, understand it, and give feedback or read it or whatever it is. You know, I mean, if you and I were recording our conversation, but then we never showed it to anyone, that's not really a podcast. That's just a, it's just some digital information. So yeah, I do. But I do from like, you know, when COVID happened, I sort of started uh, last March, I just started writing this piece that is now a set of three pieces uh, or like a, a suite of three pieces for mandolin, bass and uh, strings. And I just like wrote that. I've, I'm still sort of working on getting it recorded because obviously it's a little bit difficult to record uh, at the moment, but uh, and that was one that I wrote with no direction. I just was inspired to write it, so I wrote it. There's another project that I'm working on called SoftBank Symphonia, which is going to be released on the 9th of February. And that one was a friend of mine asked me to write some music for uh, for this company, SoftBank, which is a huge investment bank, and they wanted me to write a like a long form piece of music utilizing artificial intelligence because they had heard about the Schubert project and they wanted me to write something that I could premiere at their uh, national Conference, which very luckily happened to be in Pasadena, California, which is 20 minutes away from me. So yeah, so that piece, SoftBank Symphonia was a case of a client asked me to write it. And, you know, it was a bit of the pithy a phone call from my agent situation, because I probably wasn't going to write an octet and like figure out a creative way to integrate artificial intelligence in it. But once I got into it, I was really inspired. And I it, I really love the way it came out. What I did for SoftBank Symphonia was I did something called serial music, which is when you sort of randomize 12 tones, but I used artificial intelligence to randomize them and give me a lot of different results, and I gave it some parameters to weed out results that I knew I wouldn't like. So while I got a lot of the melodies, almost all of the melodies in SoftBank Symphonia from an AI they were uh, generated in this way that usually generates really unlistenable music. But because I was able to iterate so many times, I actually got a bunch of really beautiful melodies out of it. So, or at least that's what I think. I guess the listener will be the judge.
0: Yeah, that's no, very fascinating. If you think about the way that AI works, it's it's learning from a constant repetition of tasks. But when I say constant, I don't mean 10, 15, 20 times, like literally thousands of times as well. So it it starts to make sense in my head how you can come to a decision with the right inputs that way. I have a couple like final little questions for you. Um, first, the the deep one, and then hopefully the easier one. But when I was growing up, you know, music was pretty big in school. We had band, we had choir, we had a bunch of different things. We, we read music at various points. We all were taught some sort of facet of music. And then, you know, as you get older, as is the case in the U.S., and, And much more often in the world, you just sort of lose that. Like there are some people who almost are the dreamers who continue with it, but then, you know, the rest of us like don't keep playing an instrument or have stopped singing or something like that. I'm curious from your perspective, because you obviously didn't have that happen. Why do you think that music appears to be something that we can let go of as a society versus, I don't know, all the other things that they've you know sort of keep in our rigor up until, you know, the day we stop going to school.
1: Uh Huh? I mean I think pretty much everybody is continuously interested in music uh everyone in the world every culture in the world produces and consumes music so I think part of the answer to your question is that playing music and reading music and doing the technical the technical things involved in music are not necessarily the things that bring us the most joy as a culture and I think listening to music is something that brings people a lot of joy and because of the availability of recordings and the um, ubiquity of recorded music and the ability today to listen to literally any piece of music that has ever been recorded at the touch of a button, there's very little need for people to play an instrument unless they're passionate about playing an instrument. And it was pretty much always this way. Even in the previous centuries, the th- there were amateur musicians, and this is you know sort of a famous fallacy that everybody was kind of a brilliant musician because there was nothing else to do so everyone was just playing concertos in their house but if you read accounts from that period especially from the 19th century it turns out that what was really going on was people were mangling concertos in their house and playing these pieces of music that were supposed to be played by masters horribly because they had no other option there was no way to listen to it otherwise and i think that um in today's society it's not necessary to play music poorly if it's not something that you're passionate about because you can listen to masters playing it. And so I think, I don't think people give up music. I think people give up the study of music. And I think that's how it's always been. It's, it's never, I don't think there was ever a time when all of society were professional musicians. That would be, uh, you know, we'd never get anything done.
0: That's true. I do. I do wonder, sorry to cut you off there. I, I do wonder, we're oftentimes told that the people who, well, I'm oftentimes told in, in the circles that I run in the people who have, some sort of a musical education, not necessarily to the professional level, but just one where you can say you've been trained in music in some way, shape or form, have all these extra skills that are built around it that become much more useful in their daily lives. Um, analytical skills are just like general feel for things. And so I wonder if the arts and music are oftentimes in our society just dealt a like non necessary blow, like, Hey, it's a nice thing to have in school for kids to learn some music, but it's not necessarily going to help them too much more versus perhaps those skills, those intangible skills might be more useful. We, we, we have so much in front of us. And right now, whoever's listening to us could pause open a Spotify or an Apple music and just start playing anything you've written. Cause you might be listed there really quickly. So that like access is so different than, you know, the days of vinyl and, and having to actually go listen to live music and things like that.
1: Well, I mean, think about this a hundred, 150 years ago before the in- invention of the phonograph, No one ever heard the same piece of music twice, ever. Um, You know, Uh including the people who performed it. You know, because every performance was, by by definition, a little bit different, and it was live and ephemeral. And if you weren't there to hear it, you didn't hear it. And even if you were there to hear it, you would never hear it again. And one of the things that orchestras used to do is uh, they would encore pieces that the audience liked. So sometimes they would, in in the middle of Don Giovanni, they would get to. Or, uh, you know, in the middle of the Magic Flute, they would do the uh, Queen of the Night aria, and the audience would clap so much that they would literally just do it again. They would just reset and do it again. Because once the audience left that concert hall, they would probably never hear that piece of music again.
0: Mm. That's a very good point. Yeah, I guess that extends itself into movies, television, and like plays as well. And even down to like prior to printing when all the stories were just oral, you wouldn't necessarily hear the same story told the exact same way. Um, ever again mm-hmm.
1: it's unclear to me whether recording music is uh is a step forward there's definitely something uh in the evolution of music there's there's something really amazing about th- the fact that i have access to all this music that i never would have had access to i mean i have heard more music probably in 2020 than an average musician would have heard and not participated in in their whole life 200 years ago so that's that's something amazing, and the fact that I have access to all of the to recordings of all of these different musicians throughout the ages is also amazing. But I don't know if the experience of uh, a concert is better or worse.
0: It's just different, isn't it? It's just different. And there's a if you ever come to London, I'll I'll take you to a, a record store in, on Columbia Flower Market. There's a a lovely gentleman there by the name of Daniel who has a really really um, very direct attitude about uh, the way that we consume it these days versus what we even did in the, in the proper record days. And then, um, I do want to ask you one last question okay? because I feel like we could, we could also wax poetic for a while, but I'm (laughs) going to ask you one last question so we don't bore everybody to death. And the question is just very simply, what do you listen to? What kind of music when you're not working, are you
1: listening to? I listen to a lot of different stuff. Um, (laughs) that's the lamest answer ever Uh, I listen to like all (laughs) kinds of stuff so you know what I'm going to do I'm going to like open up my phone right now and I'm going to look at Spotify and I'm just going to read you like the last couple of things that I've listened to so the number one track on Spotify for me that I've listened to is Buster Poindexter's Hot 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 and (laughs) the reason for that is that my almost two year old son loves that song and so when he's eating lunch, we play it over and over again. And so that is... Look,
0: look, no <laughs> one is judging you. If you can just say that you love that song, oh, okay, I also, it's I totally mean, fine. I also
1: love that song. You know, wh- one-year-olds don't decide music that they like. I, I played it for him because I was like, <laughs> this is awesome. You're going to love it. And also, uh, my wife is now trying to teach our son about feelings. And she's having a little bit of a problem because whenever she asks him how he's feeling, he says, hot, hot, hot so oh, gosh uh, worth it so totally worth it i've got uh also uh bad guy billy eilish and uh levitating dua lipa who i just discovered and love and there's a great album called uh dixieland jazz by a guy named sam levine that is just this really awesome authentic dixieland jazz and i love that that stuff too and i've been listening to a guy dom flemonds is his name and he's he's known as the American Songster, and he plays basically it's like music from like the 19th century into the early 20th century, and he plays it really authentically on period instruments. And he's a great singer and a great songwriter. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff I listen to. I, I it th- that that was you know this week. Sometimes I listen to classical music. Uh, I, I love Boccherini string quartets, and uh, I love Smetna's From My Life, his sort of most famous string quartet. And uh, I was listening to Beethoven's Ninth the other day because I don't know, for some reasons I don't remember but it just was for some reason a thing that I felt like I should listen to and uh, I could go on and on about what I've been listening to recently Oh my god, yeah. microtonal etudes How did I forget about this? <laughs> Sorry I've got I've got, I've to plug this, I've got to find the name of this composer and I've got to plug this because um, it is the coolest thing We'll, we'll put a link.
0: So Yeah, I'll put a link for everybody. Yeah,
1: Microtonal Etudes. I've been thinking a lot about musical temperament, and that is definitely a different podcast. I won't get into it here, but there's a composer who wrote a bunch of etudes in different temperaments, and they are so cool.
0: That was Lucas Cantor, both my guest as well as the musician of the outro music that you're listening to right now, which comes from the Sinfonia piece that we discussed at the end. Lucas is a great guest because I'm not totally sure he realizes how utterly cool his musical knowledge is. It seems very matter of fact, but for someone like me, and I'm guessing people outside the world that he operates in, it's astounding. I said this last year when I had my friend Joe on the show, and that's that people with these talents are amongst the most humble yet driven folks that I've ever met. For more about Lucas, I have left a few links in the show notes. And with that, I'm going to stop this ending early so you can take in some of the music that he composed with the help of AI. That's it for today's story. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get the latest updates anywhere you get your podcasts if you have a moment and you're feeling generous, please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps me understand how to make this show even better. For more info on me and this concept, you can visit our website at onesimplequestion.co. One Simple Question is hosted by me, Abhishek Lahoti. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you tune in again soon, and bye for now.